0: Welcome to Post Doom, Regenerative Conversations Exploring Overshoot, Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with my dear friend and colleague, Joe Brewer. Joe and I have done presentations together. Uh, they're up on YouTube. You just put Joe Brewer and Michael Dowd. He's a leading light in the field of regenerative design. And he's a system scientist, He's just an amazing human being, young man with tremendous gifts and a synthetic mind that brings so many things together. I think you're going to enjoy this. Well, Joe, it's, it's a delight to see you again. It's a delight to see you with this uh, beard that you just explained to me is because your cat cut your lip and you can't shave, which is kind of cute. Um, but I also look forward to seeing you hopefully in the Pacific Northwest in the not too distant future. And um, one of the things I'm really looking forward to, especially in this conversation, and there's about a half a dozen others that are really involved in solid regenerative work. And you know, for so many of us who have been about the work of trying to transform civilization, transform culture, evolve, um, cultural evolution, Um, we can be disappointed, depressed, frustrated at the inertia, at the stupidity, at the, what John Michael Greer calls the senility of the elites. Um, and just the the disappointing setbacks and so how to stay inspired how to stay on purpose with regards to this cultural evolution work this regenerative work in these trying times is something I'm gonna really want you to to uh, share uh, at, at some
1: length about um first of all I just want to say it's always a pleasure <laughs> to have conversations with you Michael I'm really delighted to do it in this way where we can capture it Um because you've been such an inspiration to me. I remember reading Thank God for Evolution like 10 years ago and being like, wow, this level of deconstructing narrative is just so important in these times. Um, And I still tell people they should read that book uh, when the opportunity presents itself.
0: Um, Thanks, brother.
1: A little about me, I'm something of a, a, People call me a renaissance man, which I think is actually fair, because I uh, am trying to integrate knowledge across a lot of different areas to support a paradigmatic shift at societal scales, which is what a renaissance is about, and so um, I, I like to start my story by saying I grew up on a chicken farm in rural Missouri before the internet in a place that had an absence of good quality books and mentors and so when I went to college I just studied everything to pick a degree Um, here I am 25 years later still weaving together complexity science philosophy physics and mathematics cognitive and behavioral sciences ecology biology uh, more recently cultural evolution as a research field. Um, well, with-
0: hang on just a second. Let me just jump in because, you know, sometimes when people hear a person uh, refer to themselves in a, um, uh, in a really strongly positive light, they, they well, I consider you a renaissance man, too, and it's precisely because of the wealth and diversity of disciplines that you have not just read in, but contributed significantly to. So uh, I want to just amen that.
1: Yeah, it's a a weird thing to to use to describe oneself, but I think it's accurate. And uh, part of what my passion has been for a very long time is... Uh, driven by a sense of connection to nature and uh, compassion for other living things. As a child growing up, dealing with some of my own uh, depression and being bullied and humiliated and picked on as a kid, uh, I just would go out into the wilderness you know, on, my, on our farm in, the, in southwest Missouri to connect with rivers and trees and animals as a way of finding my health and sanity. It's interesting because my work now, as we'll discuss in a few minutes, has become about regenerating bioregions. And I've only recently learned that the oldest organized effort in bioregional thinking comes from the Ozarks, from Missouri and Northern Arkansas. Um, So yeah, so my, my work has been in many ways about synthesizing, translating, integrating knowledge, and helping practitioners of various kinds to be more effective at social change. And so um, I worked with George Lakoff for a time, studying cognitive linguistics and then did strategic framing work with social movements and activist communities for about a decade. Um, and I was trained in graduate school in earth system sciences, which is when my eyes became really widely open to the ecological crisis. Of course. And so um, in many ways, you could you could put me in the sustainability camp Although I've never actually liked the word sustainability. Right, exactly. Um, which I, I know you resonate with. <laughs>
0: yeah. well, but, well, too many people interpret it as um, making rapacious industrialism sustainable. And uh, genuine sustainability is living in a living in place without destroying the place, basically. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it's not uh, making everything that we now have just last a little longer
1: or whatever. Yeah, we spent the last year living in Costa Rica with our two-year-old daughter, uh, living in a biodiversity hotspot in a rainforest, and just beginning, I mean, the very early days of learning what a food forest is as a subsistence, complex ecosystem that is managed by humans for nature with humans fully integrated, a deeply indigenous way of life. Yes. And um, anyone who begins to get exposed to something like that Sees how deep the rabbit hole needs to go for sustainability.
0: Because of your background, it's interesting. When I was living in Springfield, going to Evangel College, um, the most exciting course that I've ever had, actually my most uh, fa- my favorite course in all my undergraduate and graduate work, was philosophy of language, and um, and that's when I started getting into Lakoff back in the in in the mid '80s. And I'm curious. You know, we're using post doom as as for this series. But I'm curious, how do you speak about or think about and, and articulate for yourself and others these times that we live in and what's unfolding?
1: I've used a few different words. Um, planetary predicament is one I like for anyone who knows what a predicament is, you know, that it has no solution. It's so interdependent and complex. Yeah. Uh, and we are in a predicament that has no solution in, a, in the normal sense of what solution means. I've been running a workshop for about a year now called Managing Planetary Collapse that looks at the collapse dynamics and takes seriously the cultural evolution of humanity as the major driver of that process. So planetary collapse has been language that i have used. In earlier years when I focused more on climate change, I talked about the climate crisis or the ecological crisis as ways of describing this. Um, One of the more interesting ways we've described it was in a campaign I did with an organization called The Rules where we took the Algonquin concept called Wetiko or Wendigo, and we talked about this as a giant Wetiko phenomenon, which is where the illusion of separation leads to an endless drive to consume until it becomes self-destroying. It's a really powerful metaphor for, for understanding these times in an indigenous lens.
0: Say that again because I wanna make sure that nobody misses this because I think it's vital.
1: Yeah, so uh, Wetiko is a concept from the Algonquin tradition in basically New England up into Nova Scotia and that eastern part of Canada. And uh, Wetiko is a monster that comes out of the dark winter. And so think like December, January, and it comes from the north with a heart encased in ice Is a metaphor for the inability to experience empathy and that it is nearly dead or undead like a zombie and that it consumes endlessly in a cannibalistic fashion so that it just is life eating and life destroying and um, when the european explorers came they called them wetiko culture and christopher columbus was called a big wetiko a person who was the embodiment of this this rapacious and destructive cultural approach. And so Wetiko is is a really powerful indigenous um, spiritual concept Mm -hmm. that is very good for critiquing capitalism and uh, industrialism and other aspects of our modern life.
0: Yeah, perfect, fabulous, thank you. Um, So the heart of this particular podcast series, as opposed to, or not opposed to, building on the one that I did uh, four or five years ago that you were also a part of, The Future is Calling Us to Greatness, is really to allow various teachers, thought leaders, authors, activists to share their story of how they went from things are fine or sort of the secular religion of perpetual progress to, oh my God, to, oh shit, to wherever they are now. And especially how how do they stay inspired in the in the challenging times that we are now in. So take as much time as you want, sort of your, your journey or your story.
1: Yeah, for me it actually goes back to when I was three years old and I was in preschool playing on the playground and wondering why all the kids were so mean to each other and just seeing what I now understand to be coercive parenting, kind of um, developmental environments that damage the emotional development of children But even back then, I thought there was something wrong with the world. So I never really was uh, um, captured or uh, seduced by the secular myth of progress, um, which really was helpful. Uh, Also, as between the ages of roughly 8 and 18, I had a roughly bipolar type of depression and elation uh, pattern. And pondered suicide quite a lot during that period. say I pondered it, I never had intended to take action, but I definitely reflected on the pain I felt and the preference to be dead over being alive. And so uh, I feel like when I look back that that grappling with depression really helped me get good at discerning reality.
0: Was this like in the 1970s, when was this?
1: Uh, I was born in 1976, so this would have been roughly mid 80s. through okay. And um, I also remember in fourth grade, uh, we had the weekly reader, this little pamphlet for elementary school kids that would come out every week. There was a, a specific column about how water was becoming polluted. And that by the end of the century, we might all drink from bottled water. And as a fourth grader who grew up on a farm, drinking with my hand scooped from the river, I just couldn't imagine a world where we couldn't drink the water safely. By the time I was in high school, a sophomore in high school, everyone was drinking bottled water, and I remembered. Yeah. You know, like wow, it came even faster, and so so I had a few of these earlier experiences that were bringing me into a deepening awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the time that really did it for me was when I was in grad school, so I was at the University of Illinois studying atmospheric science, and this was a. Uh, roughly 2002-2003 is when I did this, that I gave myself a New Year's resolution. So on you know, December 31st, I told myself that I would take one year to fully try to understand the planetary crisis. And I spent the next 12 months depressing and traumatizing myself. <laughs> I'm um, sure. I, seriously, I, uh, you know, I was reading uh, books about environmental toxicology and deep ecology, you know, books like what Derek Jensen wrote, and which are like inflammatory books that piss you off, or uh, Daniel Quinn's, uh, you know, the book uh, Ishmael, which was just beautiful and inspiring, but also deeply disturbing. Um, And then also a lot of things about biodiversity loss and the IPCC reports and other scientific documents, Um, just really a, a broad swath of things. And I was in grad school, so I could leverage my coursework into this uh, as part of doing it. And then at December 31st, a year later, I you know, had a definitive stop point to say, uh, I've now given myself this year to try to understand what's going on. And the world is really, really fucked up. I mean, it is... Now, I started diving into politics and finance and debt and various things that, you know, you follow the rabbit hole. It just goes into these other spaces. I remember reading this amazing book. uh, I forget the author's name, but uh, it's called The Disappearance of Childhood. It was the story of how the developmental stage of childhood was only invented with the child labor laws that grew out of industrialism and protecting children from being in in factories, but by the 1950s with television sitcoms and advertising, the desire to keep everyone in an emotionally uh, hunted condition of permanent adolescence so that they would be good mindless consumers. My real experience of this was I was studying atmospheric physics, looking at the study of clouds and climate models while also doing this deep dive. And there's something amazing about satellite data that it, it creates the overview effect, this this phenomenon that astronauts experience of seeing the Earth from space and having a spiritual shift or a consciousness shift in their relationship to the planet. I experienced this by looking at satellite imagery of the Earth.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, I wanna just jump in real quick. My first book that I wrote in 1990, I think it was published in 1991, titled Earth Spirit, an ecological, uh, uh, let's see. What was, uh, Earth Spirit? Uh, a handbook for nurturing and ecological Christianity. And it was a little short, 120-page thing, but I must have had 50 quotes, including maybe uh, 12 or 14 from astronauts, all about sort of this overview, of this 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 perspective, and how emotionally and spiritually and intellectually transforming that big picture can be.
1: That I would look at the Earth from the airplane, and the human imprint is everywhere. It's the lines of fields and pastures, the pathways of cities, the lights and the darkness um, from all of the use of electricity that I could see a world that had been unwilded. And so um, for me, that year of immersion was really transformative. And I think it took me about 10 years to come to recognize how deeply it traumatized me. You know, not to say 10 years later, I had addressed the trauma. It's more that <laughs> I had addressed a little bit of the trauma and I'd come to grasp how significant it had traumatized, the traumatization was for me in doing that. And um, another thing on my journey was moving from I'm really depressed about this and it's and I'm angry about it into political activism when I started working with George Lakoff at the the Rockridge Institute, a think tank in Berkeley that did a discourse analysis for the progressive movement, at the time thinking that if I could help change politics, then we might be able to address some of these problems, which I later realized was a form of ignorance and denial. You know, a lack of deep systemic understanding that I really developed over a five or six year period of time getting to see how political systems are so deeply compromised and broken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which in the early days depressed me more and in the later days empowered me more
0: mm-hmm.
1: in that surrendering process that you've so eloquently described in other conversations of letting go of what I now know I cannot change, yeah. um, which has been a big theme in my life. Um, one of the things that really has been difficult in all of this is how socially isolating and alienating it is. and also how condescending and patronizing i could be when i saw adults who were otherwise very intelligent being absolutely stupid or immature in the context of the planetary condition that we're in yes and just not having the emotional maturity myself to have compassion for them Right,
0: <laughs> beautifully said
1: <laughs> which i i still struggle with today Um, I I think that's gonna be a really hard one for me because I value knowledge so much that when I see someone being willfully ignorant, it just upsets me. And I have a really hard time avoiding that judgment response. Um, It's it's something I really struggle with. But, um, you know, just to give an example of how uh, this disconnect has played out, I did consulting work for about 10 years with strategic framing where people would hire me to help them with messaging. You know, tell us how we could create better words and phrases to talk about healthcare. And I'm like, no, you have to transform your whole organization and your whole industrial sector and the whole structure of your society. And by the way, there's 2,000 years of Western philosophy. You know, like just being aware of these things yeah. made it so difficult yeah. to relate to people in an honest way. Um, just really, really difficult. And one of the things that I started doing, it just by a synchronicity, was around the same time that Jim Bendel published his deep adaptation paper, was I decided to convene a gathering at our home in Eugene, Oregon last year, uh, where we were living at the time, to explore a planetary collapse. And um, the uh, the thinking behind that was, in a couple of parts. One is that most of my work became social media oriented. I did a lot of blogging. I think I've written about 500 blog articles at this point in time, um, because I'm just a fast writer. And so I built a following and have a lot of people who follow me on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and so on. And so I found myself increasingly in the virtual sphere of social media, Mm -hmm. while in the real world being completely alone and isolated. It's like me talking to a screen rather than being with people. And I was just done with that. I was, when our daughter was born almost three years ago, I went into a deep depression um, about, firstly, to deal with some childhood trauma, to Mm -hmm. have it not come in as baggage as a parent um, for my own parenting for my child, Mm -hmm. but also that I had to face the decision we made with eyes wide open to have a child. And so, um, and that's something I'd like to talk a little bit more about, but I'll save it for the moment. I felt this need to, to connect in the flesh, face-to-face with people, and that I thought other people might feel this social need as well. And I also was looking for something, and that is, I was looking for a way of learning. I wanted to know, how do people learn about this? And the best way for me to see how people learn is to try to teach it. Mm -hmm. So I created a, a, the first one was a three-day workshop. It was in our home. I didn't charge any money. I intentionally made it non-transactional, that anyone who feels like they need to be here should come. 25 people came. It was such a validation. And I had a few people come from the Netherlands and Denmark, uh, two people that came from Germany and one person that came from South Korea, all the way to Oregon. And all the rest of them were from California and Oregon and Washington, uh, close enough that they could drive. But um, what really was validated in that experience was that people really needed social connection of feeling real when they feel like everyone around them is insane. Being at this level of awareness is such a burden socially, mm-hmm. to live in it and um, know that there are conversations that are off limits because other people don't have the psychological uh, readiness. I wouldn't say capacity, because they might in the future, but at, that, at the given moment, you can't talk to them. They'll shut it down, they'll get angry, they'll, they just won't be able to have the conversation. And so it's very lonely to have this awareness.
0: Yeah, well, I could not agree more. And that's one of the things that motivated me to have this conversation series in the first place is because so many of us that have come to this place of what I'm calling post-doom, but coming to this place of accepting what's real, seeing what's inevitable, and yet also knowing because of our experience, our knowledge, our education, whatever, but we know if humanity is to survive this bottleneck, um, there are certain things that absolutely are essential for living in right relationship to reality, right relationship to the ecosphere, and right relationship to culture. And so how to keep planting those seeds, even when you think that, you know, it's, you know, Sisyphus, pushing the rock, you know, or whatever metaphor you want to use, you know, Jim Bendell, it is deep adaptation talks about, you know, it's sort of our nature to always offer the happy chapter. You know, we've got nine, ninety, ninety-five 90, 95% of our books are all the bad news. And then the last five or 10%, if we all just come around and do this thing, you know, then it'll be fine. And that's sort of like running up the avalanche, you know? Um, and so it is lonely.
1: So, um, About seven years ago, both of my parents passed away in the same year, my father from a stroke and my mother from cancer. And when my mother was passing away, we had hospice care with her for five or six days. And during that process, I realized how important it is to bear witness. I don't think I really understood what bearing witness meant before that. That here was my mother, she was dying, her body was shutting down, And my job was to not try to do anything to stop it, and instead honor and appreciate what was happening and bear witness to it, Yes. yes. give love by seeing it and seeing it honestly. It was really powerful for me. And when I look at what's happening to the planet, bearing witness is huge we are actually the part of the biosphere bearing witness to the destruction of the biosphere by our own actions. Yes, yes. And so there's something really empowering, you are know, getting back to the reflection you'd made about uh, Paul Cheperka's, uh five stages, missing a sixth stage of receiving the gift. Yes. I was listening to that this morning and was really inspired by it. The gift of being able to authentically be present and to give love to something we care about is huge. It's really a big deal just by itself. So I think that's a really important piece of this. Um, But another thing is that we've learned some things in the last 50 years that might save humanity from extinction, even if we move into a pattern that makes extinction likely. And those things that we've learned are related to two major areas of of inquiry. One of them is the inner work of contemplative and mindfulness practices that enable an increasing number of people to discern and manage in the context of complexity. And that is a really big thing. The second is, the knowledge about living systems, about how life works. Mm -hmm. And this gets into the work of regeneration because for me regeneration has a very specific meaning and it comes from the concept of autopoiesis where autopoiesis is uh, the dynamic pattern of any living thing that is able to reproduce the conditions of being alive from moment to moment. So the example I give for regeneration is every 30 days, your skin reproduces the outer membrane of your body. All of the cells of your skin die off, new skin cells form, and in an, a repeating pattern of producing the conditions of nutrients, energy, temperature, pressure, your skin is able to keep regenerating itself. Yes. And if we understand regeneration as a process of living systems, we can design, meaning we can take intentional actions Mm -hmm. to create the conditions for regeneration of other living systems. Yes. So we can do regenerative design for a watershed. We could do regenerative design for uh, a community economy. We could do regenerative design for uh, the ocean current, what's called the thermohaline circulation of the entire world ocean you know, at all scales, we could do it, at least in theory. You know, in practice, it's much more challenging, obviously, but the fact that it's possible in principle tells us there's something to be done. And so this thing, like you said, of Connie um, helping the trees to move northward, that's part of the carbon cycle and part of the hydrological cycle of the earth. How can we do things like regenerate soils on degraded land.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: You know, how can we stabilize coastal estuaries where fisheries have already collapsed? Yes. And when anyone asks this question and then in earnestness goes to look at what's known, they find that a great deal is known yes. about how to do it. Yes. So we actually can attempt this.
0: I think, frankly, that is the most important information to pass on, kind of like the way that, that, you know, the Irish monasteries passed on the the wisdom of the ancient world, the Greek and Roman uh, uh, knowledge base, um, you know, and other religious communities have done that in other cultures, China, India as well. Um, the holy knowledge, the, the sacred knowledge of our time that needs to be treated as more important than any individual. It, it, it's, it's, it's holy, it's, it's sacred, it can't be bought or sold and it's vital to pass on, it's, it's sacred work to pass on in the future is all of the knowledge that we have about regeneration and permaculture and and deep sustainability, not just shallow environmentalism. And that, it seems to me, is the information that is worth uh, uh, passing on no matter what it's 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 vital
1: i definitely resonate with that kind of hermeneutic tradition idea of we have sacred knowledge and we have to pass it down and that uh, the best way to pass it down is the combination of the ancient scrolls and the librarians yeah and living
0: practice living which, yeah,
1: which means the people who embody it in exactly. their practices, and so uh I actually started a project a year and a half ago to create a research library for cultural evolution, did a crowdfunding campaign, raised some money. I now have about 1,000 books, and I have people who want to gift me more books when I find a place to establish the school where this library will be held. And the idea is for these books to be part of a cultural seed bank. So I think we need to create cultural seed banks as part of this. Yes. But that's only one piece. The most important thing is going to be more cybernetic, which is we need to maintain the ability to perceive the systems of regeneration that we need to do the design work on. So as an example, if you look at satellites that circle the earth and that are tracking uh, the uh, net primary production of photosynthesis, that are tracking the flow of salt and density currents in the ocean, various things of the health of the earth system that we've built up in the last half century. Uh, You could think of all this technology as Gaia building a new apparatus of perception. Just like how your body and my body have eyes and a visual cortex as part of our perception system, the earth now has eyes to see the earth because humans built them
0: yes exactly
1: and so our ability to maintain that through the collapse is very low we're unlikely to maintain it
0: yeah especially when you understand the kessler effect and the the, the amount of space junk that is quite likely in the next 50 years to take out a lot of that unfortunately
1: yeah and most of it's for short-term commercial gain yes exactly um, so Um, So we have this need for the knowledge itself in the sense of, how does a living system work? How do you restore soils? How do you increase the health of a forest ecosystem? Those sorts of knowledge are going to be needed. But there's this other kind of knowledge-making or sense-making that's needed, which is the ability to perceive the systems in need of regeneration. And this is where I think it's going to be more challenging. You know, setting aside some books on soil science and permaculture and being sure they don't get destroyed is easier than trying to keep the global surveillance system of planetary health in place.
0: And how to transmit or, or um, how to help our species come back into a more indigenous I vow relationship to primary reality, so that it's not all about sort of anthropocentric betterment at the expense of everything else, but that we recognize that we are here to be a blessing to the community of life, that we are a part of the community of life, that it is our, that we ultimately need to relate to the living systems of this planet as, uh, as vows in a personal way, in a respectful way, in an honorable way. Um, and that worldview shift is not easy, but as as Dana Meadows talked about, that paradigm shift is really um, where the greatest leverage is. Um,
1: yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Dana Meadows because there's an essay that she wrote in 1983 that I just learned about a few months ago. The essay is called The History of the Barlatin Group, or the, sorry, the history of the Ballatin Group, which is the brain trust that formed around the limits to growth study. So between the early 70s and the early 80s, they convened symposia at different universities and different retreat centers. And in 1983, Dana wrote an essay about the history of the Ballatin group. And what she said was after 10 years of conversations, what do we do with the knowledge that we're overshooting the planet? And after those 10 years, what she concluded was that the only way to get to planetary sustainability was to create a network of bioregional learning centers that supported economies that were regional flows of materials that were based on the principles of living systems. Exactly. She said this in 1983. So I was given this essay after I had started doing exactly that work. Having no idea she'd read, she'd written this essay, <laughs> and so um, when I read the essay, I was just uh, blown away by the validation yes,
0: exactly.
1: that Dana was just so on top of this one. So this idea of bioregional learning centers is something that I think is really important because one thing that living systems do is they integrate across scales. You know, like if you're a follower of integral theory and Ken Wilber, then there's the whole on concept, the whole part relationship. Uh, But if you look at it more through the lens of evolutionary transitions, where previously autonomous evolved entities enter into symbiosis, and then the symbiosis becomes integrated at a functional level so that evolution moves up to a higher level of organization and the individual autonomous things can no longer survive on their own right. a classic example is mitochondria it used to be a bacteria they enter the body of another bacteria and over time evolution selected for their integration and now neither can survive on their own
0: yeah i just want to just yeah. want to mention that uh, i mentioned dolores la chapelle um, and joanna macy um, another one of my most significant female mentors was lynn Margulis.
1: yeah lynn Margulis's work is Hugely important here. And uh, the way this relates to the Gaia theory, the insight that the entire planet self-regulates using the biosphere to maintain the conditions for life, that's the largest scale version of regeneration that we know of, is a planetary scale system that regenerates itself. That's what the Gaia theory um, proposed, and that has now been validated as true. And when we step out and look at the role of space, weather and other things, it's actually a solar system level of regeneration.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Shielding itself from asteroids with a, a mid-level larger um, planet that's almost a star like Jupiter and these other things that are at the solar system level. Astrobiologists have been figuring this stuff out more recently. Exactly. But um, if we understand regeneration at this planetary scale, then we have the ability to do something with the bioregional scale, which is we can focus on creating regeneration for watersheds, mountain ranges, coastal estuaries, etc., which are human enough in scale that we've already figured out how to manage them. We don't necessarily do it very well, but there are examples of it being done well.
0: Yeah, and, and, and even management is interesting a term. There's, a, there's a, a biocentric form of management which relates to the biosphere as a teacher and learns from that. And then there's an anthropocentric form of management that's actually often self-destructive.
1: Yeah, that's a really important distinction because here managing is like, um, when I talk about managing planetary collapse, it's partly how do you manage emotionally how do you manage your inability to manage the larger system? And also, uh, what does it provoke in you if I, if I make the claim that we might be able to manage it? And, and both of those are inquiries that are really important to have. Yes. Um, they're, so they're, they're, evoc- they're evocations. You know, they, they evoke a conversation that needs to happen. And when I think of this planetary scale, how do we get to planetary scale? Well we do it by nested levels. Yeah. We do local level things that are connected to the functional landscapes of regional scale things, which are connected region to region, to trans-regional and then planetary. Yeah. And this is where like, if we're gonna restore the three or four billion hectares of degraded soils, it's going to be because we, re- we restore it in a large number of small locations.
0: You know, so who along the, you know, over the decades, um, who have been your most important teachers, mentors, uh, uh, you know, uh, those who had the biggest influence on you, you mentioned a little bit already, but more on that. And then who do you now consider sort of your closest colleagues or the people who you admire and respect most deeply at this time?
1: I've really learned from so many different people that it's sort of a blur to say who is more important, you know, or who stands out. I always struggle to answer the question for that reason. But when I look back at some of the ideas that influenced me the most, which have had a greater impact than individual people, the ideas came from people. So it's, it's really interesting when I look at Francis Bacon, who in many ways I actually disagree with. He had a number of ideas about organisms as machines and the ability to exploit nature and things that I actually find to be deeply part of the problem. But if you go and read his document that outlines the scientific method, where he captured so powerfully the cognitive biases, that's what we would call them today, the cognitive and sociological biases that keep us from seeing the world as it is, and the need for empiricism, and the need for uh, increasingly rigorous methods to discern reality. That that kind of an idea is so powerful for me that I have to say someone like Francis Bacon would be in my list. Yeah, of course. Um, and so I have people like that who have definitely influenced me quite a lot. Um, like, I love the work of Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist and philosopher mm-hmm. who helps me understand the, the, the way that the body is able to be conscious of itself mm-hmm. and how that happens as, as brain processes. Yes. I think his work is of huge importance uh, to the work that I do. Uh, I'm a big fan of David Orr Mm -hmm. as uh, just a design thinker who does the ethics right. Yeah, I see a lot of really brilliant designers of mixed ethical capacity. And I see someone like David Orr who's at Oberlin College in Ohio. I mean, he is so good at finding the hypocrisy when someone is not going to the depth of ethics needed for design work to be effective. So David Orr's work has been hugely influential to me. Um, As a contemporary that I find a lot of camaraderie with and inspiration from, and who gets associated with me a lot because we're good friends, uh, Daniel Kristen Vall, who's living on Mallorca right now. Um, Daniel and I, every time we talk, We can tell that both of us struggle to have integrity in the way we make our decisions in very similar ways. And we both feel alone in that struggle in ways that make us really value our friendship. Um, And so it's interesting with Daniel that I don't feel camaraderie with him because of his knowledge or because of uh, his contributions or the similarity of, of the work. I find it in the personal struggle to be a good father. He has a daughter about the same age as our daughter. And in the struggle to live an ethical life. That's what I really, um, I feel like as I'm getting older, I'm now almost 43, so I'm in the process of beginning this 15 year or 20 year process of becoming an elder. Mm -hmm. I can feel it coming Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I'm slowly preparing myself that I feel increasingly my work is spiritual. And what I mean by spiritual is how to live an ethical life. Um, And I just have always been inspired by the thinkers throughout the ages who have grappled with that. But, um, But in this time, it's just so disheartening to see people that are intellectual mentors. I love their ideas and their brilliance, but their emotional capacities, their ethical capacities, in the face of this post-doom conversation, I find often are not adequate. Mm-hmm. And it's just very frustrating. So one thing I like about the framing of post-doom, you'd ask that question at the beginning, and yes, I,
0: exactly. sort of,
1: it slipped out. I didn't come back and address it is for me, post-doom is a really good framing because doom is what we feel. It's not what is. And to be beyond that feeling is to be at a place of empowered action and discernment that doesn't resolve predicaments. There's still predicaments, but it does give us a different way of finding ethical action and um, connecting to what is sacred to us as individual people. And, you know, I get asked increasingly by people for life advice, and, um, which also makes me feel like I need to practice becoming an elder uh, to get better at this. Uh, <laughs> but um, exactly. but I, I've come up with two answers to the question of how to make life decisions. And the first one is, I ask the person, you know, who, who wants my advice, I ask them to reflect on this question. What is it that you find so sacred, that you care so much about, that even if you will never see the benefits or the outcomes of your actions, that 200 years from now it's going to happen, that you would still consider it the right thing to do? And just reflect on that. Yes. And then the second thing is, everything is embodied so if we're going to regenerate the earth, we need to find pieces of land to regenerate. So the second thing I ask them to reflect on is, where is the piece of earth that is so much a part of you that you love so much that you would be happy to have your blood spilled there, that you would die there and have your body become the soil there, that you would give your love to and regenerate? Because this is the time. To- that's
0: great, that's perfect.
1: And that's, um, that's what we need to be doing. Yes. We are, I mean, there are these beautiful Christian phrases from ash to ash, from dust to dust, right? Like, we are the earth. That and Also, even the, the Christian metaphor of spirit as breath, which resonates with a lot of Native American tradition, mm-hmm. um, the idea that we are the earth breathing, and that when the breath subsides and we relinquish breath we become the dust again well have we loved that dust have we regenerated that soil is a question that um enables me to do the right thing regardless of the outcome and um i also do think that there is a a trajectory of possibility that has not closed off Mm. But to go back to that that old saying of knowing the difference between what we can change and what we cannot change is where we get to wisdom. Um, When I was reading William Catton's book after you had recommended it, because I hadn't read it before, uh, I was struck by how that book is the content of the workshop I've been given. And I hadn't read his book. And The first thing I do in my workshop on managing planetary collapse is I demonstrate to the participants that this collapse is bigger, more complex, and more extended in time than most of us realize. And I go back and tell the story of human evolution, and I start the planetary collapse story three million years ago with the Oldowan tools, with the invention of metaphor. You know, when people could look at a rock and see a spear and then carve the spear out of the rock, that's when we began to convert our environment into human use. Yeah and reducing the complexity of the environment to increase the complexity of human systems. It goes back about three million years, this process of planetary collapse driven by cultural evolution in our species. Three million years. But the, the pivotal moment, the point of no return was the Green Revolution. Three generations ago, a set of people made the decision to grow the human population way beyond the carrying capacity of the the planet, guaranteeing a population crash. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to get to the stage of grieving that I could even see that fact. It took me 20 years to get to that place, where I could see that avoiding the collapse of the human population was impossible decades before I was born.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And that's, my, that's like a mind fuck right there. It's like, yes. what do you do with that information? Turns out what you do is you let it go. And you're incredibly empowered to not have that burden anymore. It's yes. just incredible. Because yes. now I can focus on what my wife, Jessica, wants to do. She wants to grow a food forest. Yes. We can do that now and say, I don't have to feed 9 billion people. <laughs> But if there's a subsistence food system or a network of them for 100 million people, for a billion people, whatever that number ends up being, well, hallelujah. Amen. You know, And so uh, I don't have to try to keep this artificially huge, completely unrealistic population bubble intact to do regenerative work. I'm no longer paralyzed by that emotional angst a feeling like I'm choosing to kill humans by, by trying to, by no longer trying to stop the collapse. I'm not complicit in the death of all those humans. That happened before I was born. And this relates to something I, I wanted to talk about, so I'm gonna bring it in now, and that's what it's like to have a child in these times. Please. Because this is so transformative for my family. You know, my wife and I have known about the planetary crisis for 15 years. You know, both of us have had a shared understanding for at least that long. And three and a half years ago, we made the decision to start trying to get pregnant and have a child. So we knew what our child would grow up in. Mm -hmm. The limits to growth study captures it pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, It may not be exactly right, but it's tracked reality with disturbing accuracy so far. So why did we do that? And we realized that we had a a reason, a motivation that was not conscious, that took about a year's reflection to figure out. And so it wasn't like we had the logic that this is why we were going to do it. It's just as we were going through the pregnancy and our daughter was born and beautiful child and the love of a parent and all that immense, amazing humanity that we were feeling. And we realized that we needed to believe, have faith in the goodness of humanity. And we needed to put skin in the game. That, yeah, this wasn't conscious, but we realized it within the first year of our daughter's life, that we, were, we weren't betting on humanity's future. We were committing an act of service to humanity's future. It was an act of atonement for us to do this. Yes. Yes. For us, it was, if we really believe the earth is better off with humans than without, or at least if part of us does, then we need to commit to the continuity of our species mm-hmm. and we're gonna have a child. And now we're responsible to raise that child for what needs to happen in the next 50 years, which is her lifetime. Yeah. And now we have a daily moment to moment reminder of our responsibility. Yes. And it is absolutely transformative. So right now, um, we, we just finished spending 10 months living in a biodiversity hotspot in Costa Rica trying to help regenerative work, while our daughter learned how to step over the lines of ants and how to recognize the sound of different toucans by their bird calls, and all of these amazing biophilia, ethnobotany, she was being trained in identifying medicinal plants by indigenous people uh, that we want to give her more of, But she now has 10 months of that, learning some Spanish, in a, you know, another language. But also, we ended that, that uh, time in Costa Rica a few days ago. Tomorrow, we go on a bike tour. So we chose not to choose where we go next. Instead, we're going to go spend two or three weeks on our bicycles on some rails to trails in northern Idaho, the Hiawatha Trail, the Trail of the Coeur Lanes, and the Centennial Trail. And this is our time for reflection and meditation on what's happened in the last year. And also, we are committing ourselves in the next year to a journey by invitation. Yes. Where we're gonna let all of our friends and the people in our networks and let them know what kind of service to Gaia we want to serve, that we feel called to serve. For me, it's about creating a design school for regenerating the earth. For Jessica, it's about creating a food forest for future generations. And then for our daughter, it's the community and the environment to raise her in to be the kind of human we'll need mid-century, to be one of them. So in the next year, we're going to travel to the places that we are invited, only go where we're invited, to find where that community is for our daughter and where that land is for the food forest of my wife and where these books are that I've collected and the school I'm creating, where will it be housed? And so we're doing this knowing that we can't know what to do. Yeah. So we're just opening ourselves up to be of service
0: because, you know, my lifestyle and Connie's in my lifestyle for the last almost 18 years, um, this itinerant living out of the generosity of people who have surplus housing where we're invited to stay for a month or two or longer at a time and then to speak in secular and religious settings around there. And so I highly recommend the itinerant follow your heart, follow where the invitations come, uh, do good work, uh, given your gifts and, uh, and don't sweat the rest uh, lifestyle.
1: You could relate to this.
0: <laughs> deeply, deeply. So any final things that you'd like to say in, this, in, in bringing this particular conversation to a close? And I sure hope that our paths uh, intersect uh, in the Pacific Northwest in the next couple of months.
1: Yeah, the thing that I would say uh, is that it is an honor to be in this conversation. So anyone listening, it is an honor that they are in the conversation. And I'm using honor here the way that the Japanese use it, which is it is my responsibility to the community that I serve to act according to the ethics of that community, it is an honor. And so for those of us who are going to try to regenerate the earth, those of us who are the imaginal cells of this butterfly, of Gaia becoming self-aware, It's really important that we recognize two things. One is that it's already too late, that the planetary collapse has been growing for literally millions of years. It's been accelerated in the last 50 to 70 years and there's nothing to do that can stop its momentum. So give up, surrender, don't waste another breath on that. There is no time. And there's too much important work. So the second thing is do the work of regenerating the Earth. And that means capturing carbon in the soils and in the plants. That means cleaning the waterways of pollutants. That means increasing the microbial health of soils. That means maintaining and repropagating the biodiversity of life anywhere that it is. And that means being humans as part of those ecosystems. Knowing that our job as humans at this point in time is to bear witness to our mother and to plant the seeds of future life for all children. And I mean all children, because I'm not talking about humans alone. We have a biosphere to protect. And if we humans go down keeping the biosphere up, then that was our honor. That was our duty. And so we do what we can and we try to keep humans around because humans are really beautiful. We really are beautiful. All of our ugliness that we can react to with negativity and feel that's so ugly is how we know that we're beautiful. Mm. And so it's just so important that we do this work. and. Um, And we have our lives, so let's give them.
0: For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.